Hi everyone, I'm Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack podcast for week 7 of the 2017-2018 curling season. This week, we chat with Brad Jacobs about his team's victory at the Shorty Jenkins Classic in Cornwall. We catch up with Jerry Gertz of the World Curling Tour to discuss some of the important announcements that were made at the World Curling Congress in Slovenia on the weekend. We continue our Road to Summerside series with Skip's Kerry Anderson and Cherry Madaw. We'll play you a clip from the next episode of Behind the Hack, where Shel Bernard interviews two-time world and three-time Briar champion Kevin Cooey. And in our second roundtable discussion of the season, we are joined by World Curling Tour players and curling bloggers John Cullen and Mike Fournier. All that more this week, but first, Canadian musician and non-curler extraordinaire Jimmy Reed plays us into the podcast. Our first guest this week will be Brad Jacobs, but before we chat with Brad, here is our one-minute recap of Week 7. At the HDF shootout in Edmonton, Team Muirhead of Scotland came back from 5-2 down after 7 ends to win the final over Team Hasselberg 7-5 in an extra end. At the AMJ Campbell Shorty Jenkins Classic, in the men's final, Team Jacobs defeated Team McEwen by a score of 3-1 in a game that saw no scoring after the fourth end. In the women's event at the Shorty Jenkins, Team Sinclair of the U.S. continued their strong play to start the season, going undefeated in the round robin and defeating Team McCarville 6-5 in the final. Sean Giel and his team from New Westminster won their first King Cash since 2013 by defeating hometown favorites Team Joannis of Maple Ridge 6-5 in the final. In the women's final, Team Work of Chilliwack took an early lead and held off a late charge by Team Van Osh to win the final by a score of 5-3. In the weekend's junior action at the Stu Sells Junior Tankard in Toronto, Matthew Hall and his team from Kitchener-Waterloo defeated Team Wilsey of Ottawa 6-2 in the junior men's final, while in the junior women's final it was Team Roson of Toronto defeating Team Kimley of Niagara Falls by a score of 7-3. As mentioned, Brad Jacobs joined us following his team's victory at the Shorty Jenkins in Cornwall on the weekend. Brad, obviously a good week for you and the team, uh, winning your third Shorty Jenkins Classic. I realize that the focus for a team like yours are the slams, uh, the trials, and uh, and the playdowns, but it certainly must still be satisfying to go to events like the Shorty Jenkins where there was such a strong field and come up with a win. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That uh, That was a really strong field at the Shorty. So many great teams. There's a lot of teams that didn't make playoffs Last weekend, a lot of great teams that didn't make playoffs. It was a little bizarre. It kind of everyone was kind of beating one another, maybe losing some games that they normally wouldn't lose. And uh, it all came down to a lot of teams at three and two, and whoever had the better shootout. And we were fortunate to be one of those teams at three and two with a, a good enough shootout to make it into the playoffs. Um, but great field. It's a great event. We love going to that event, the Shorty Jenkins Classic. We've been going for like at least 10 years now. Um, and, uh, we've won it three times. We've lost the final, uh, that, that event definitely is one of our favorite events since we've been going to it for so long. It's the first event that, uh, I ever remember going to, um, traveling to in the world curling tour. So, uh, it's a special event for us and uh, always great to, to win that event, and especially in a strong field. How difficult is it to refocus and maintain your energy the week following a Grand Slam, which are typically difficult events both physically and mentally? Every event, it seems like, uh, is extremely tough on, on all the teams. Um, I know it's tough on us, and we talk about that all the time, how much of a grind curling is in general. But I think that one of the most important things to do um, when you when you have a short turnaround like that is I, I always think that stretching, warming up, getting yourself into into some sort of a gym during the event, not for anything rigorous, not like you're doing any big lifting or anything like that, but just to keep the blood flowing, keep the muscles loose, uh, keep the mind working well, going to the gym during events in between the events and then and then kind of picking up and, and going back into the gym uh, during the next event, it can really help you out. Um, just don't do anything too draining that's going to hurt your performance, but keeping the body loose and keeping the muscles loose and stretched out definitely helps. For those of us who weren't on hand to watch the final at the Shorty Jenkins between your team and Team McCune, it certainly looked like a pitcher's duel with a bunch of zeros on the board. Well... To be honest with you, we put on a, a, a hitting clinic in the last five ends, four ends. Mike's team would agree with that, I'm pretty sure. We, were, we weren't missing any hits. We, Ryan Harnden was putting both his rocks 
in perfectly to start every end. And uh, with four rock rule, it's a completely different game than five rock rule. And actually Mike said to me in the seventh end, five rock rule, where are you? And I replied, yeah, isn't this something? Like, isn't this boring? And it really is. Um, and we actually heard that five rock rule is going to be, it's going to come into play. It's going to be instituted into the game for, I think it's what, next season, I believe. But yeah, it's a completely different game. It was we, we it was really boring curling. We got the 3-1 lead. We were able to just uh, make all of our, our hits um, and run them out of rocks. And uh, that's kind of how it played out. You just provided me with a really good segue for my final question, Brad. Uh, as you mentioned, the World Curling Federation announced that they would be implementing the five rock rule in all of their sanctioned events and championships starting next season. I guess it doesn't change too much from the perspective of the Grand Slams, but I'm assuming it will make it easier for everyone now that the five rock rule will likely be used in events across the board. Yeah, I think it's, we all think as curlers, uh, all the top teams anyways, when we have our, some conversations with one another, that uh, the game needs to go five rock. Everyone's in agree, agreement with that, and uh, now it's going to uh, be instituted into the game very shortly. It's it's a much better game. We're we're a lot more used to it, I think, playing in the Grand Slams with the five rock rule on a regular basis. Now I know that all the curlers love it. It's uh, it's just a lot more fun. There's a lot more rocks in play. Um, it's not it's not as boring of a game as as four rock, and it would just teams have gotten so good at hitting now that uh, you can get a lead like we got um, against Mike and make all your hits, your runbacks, your peels, and uh, you can easily run teams out of rocks. And that's not the case with five rock rule. You, you need to be a little bit more precise with with the touch shots, maybe the the back lines, the hack weights, the freezes. You have to play kind of more offensive shots, soft shots, in order to uh, keep your lead. Um, so, and and it, you know, there's a lot more mistakes I think in five rock rule. It's a lot more exciting game. So, it, it's going to be great to to play that, to play the rule, to play the five rock rule, and uh, hopefully a lot more of these world curling tour events just put it into their event and and go away from four rock rule. Although. We're going to be playing four rock rule in, in a lot of the biggest events uh, coming up this season. So it is what it is, but it's going to be great once all this is settled and we're just playing with one rule in every single event. And uh, just think overall, it's going to be great for the game. This week, we continue the road to Summerside Series by interviewing two more skips that will lead their teams into the Canadian Olympic pre-trials in Summerside PEI in November. Our first guest on the road to Summerside this week is Kerry Anderson, whose team has won its first two events of the season, including the Tour Challenge Tier 2 event. Kerry, last season, your team got off to a really slow start, and this year, you've won the first two events you've entered, including the Tour Challenge Tier 2 Grand Slam event. What has your team worked on both on and off the ice to avoid the type of start you had last season? Well, um, I think last year we put a lot more pressure on ourselves to perform like we did the year before, and I think it just uh, got to each of us, and uh, we just weren't um, going out there and just having fun and just, just playing. We were thinking we need to win this. We need to do well. We It was more of a need than a want. So um, this season we just uh, spent more time with our families, um, and enjoyed our summer, and we also started much earlier. Uh, last year, we didn't start until, I think, the end of September, and I think uh, for us starting, when we did so well the year before, we started super early, and this year we started super early again, and we had no bad habits, no nothing. We just went in and just played, and we have been just on a roll and playing like those top teams like how I feel that we should always be playing. You are one of only a handful of teams that have qualified for the pre-trials and have experienced in major events such as the Slams or a Canada Cup. How much of an advantage do you feel that experience will be as you prepare and once you're on site in Summerside? Um, I think that will um, help us. We have that experience in being under that kind of pressure and we know how to take that pressure now. Like back when it was our first even our first slams or even when I was just first coming um, coming out of even juniors and whatnot. And um, I, I was always so nervous with the cameras being on you. And 
it's a totally different, totally different atmosphere. But now I'm just totally used to that. I have friends and family that always ask me, do you get nervous when you're on TV? And um, I have butterflies before a game, but I never, I don't get nervous anymore. It's, it's okay to be on TV and have the cameras on me. And so I think that will be an advantage to us as well that we're, we're used to that. Winning the Boost National Grand Slam last season certainly proved that your team can compete and win against the best teams in the world. How much more confident is your team now that you've proven to yourselves that you can not only be competitive in high-level events but win them? We've been together for five years now, and uh, uh, we all are confident in one of another, um, each other, and uh, we we know how each other throws, what we need to do to relax and to stay calm and for each other, and uh, yeah, like we're just totally we're we're ready for it, and uh, we're just uh, practicing lots and um, throwing and getting ready for Summerside. Teams that have qualified for the trials or pre-trials seem to be divided into two different approaches. Some teams are playing several events to get in as many reps as possible, while others are playing a more limited schedule to be fresher come the pre-trials. What will be the approach for your team? Um, We're playing more of a relaxed schedule. Our main focus is pre-trials. So those weekends that we're off, we're going to be practicing as a team together and focusing on things that we need to work on and specific things and um, that what each other needs. And I think that that's going to be best for our team. Um, always being on the road, being away from your family is not always the best. It's staying home sometimes, practicing, and being with your family, um, too, is really helpful. Um, and especially with us, with Liz having a little one and me having two little girls, it's, it's tougher. So I think we're just going to yeah, stay closer to home and... Now that we're into the slams, so now then we'll focus more on those two as well. And finally, Carrie, what's your fondest Olympic memory that you've seen either on TV or live if you've ever been fortunate enough to attend a Winter Olympics as a spectator? And secondly, what would it mean for you to someday represent Canada at the Olympic Games? Well, I guess when, when Jones won was a big memory. Um, it was, I just remember sitting there watching it and uh, kind of being a little envious, like, I want to be like that one day. I want to be there. I want to, that's what I want. And having those goosebumps for them, uh, that was uh, pretty exciting, too. And I would say um, it would mean the absolute world if I could represent Canada and have, wear that maple leaf on your back. It's just huge. So I hope to uh to have to do that and i would love to our second guest on the road to summerside this week is sherry madaw who has played in the olympic trials on four occasions and lost in the final of the 2013 olympic trials in winnipeg sherry you've been to each olympic trial since 1997 except for 2009 how has the importance of the trials changed since you first competed in the 97 trials in brandon well, it definitely has changed just because the format had changed. Like back in, in 96, you know, you qualified by winning a bond spiel or winning an event. So you didn't have to go hard, and it wasn't all about the important points. It was just entering the spiels that you could, which were the massive 48-team events. And if you won the spiel, you won a spot into the trials. So it was very different. Was It was all pretty much based on gearing up for that one year, where now it's all points-based. So... You know, it's two years of collecting points, but it's all of a sudden, you know, you're going into that third year to try and qualify for the events leading up to the points. And so it's really, you know, drawn out um, the year now that we're looking at like a four-year cycle and it goes from Olympics to Olympics rather than just one year. In an interview that Cheryl Bernard did with Jerry Peckham for her Behind the Hack series, he said that you were the one team that impressed him at the 2013 trials because you seemed to be relaxing in the right frame of mind the whole week. Aside from the obvious, winning games and making more shots than the other teams, what are some of the perhaps underappreciated keys to success at an event such as the trials, or in this case, the pre-trials? Yeah, for us, um, I mean, starting the week, I think we were like ranked maybe second last third last so there certainly wasn't a lot of eyes or pressure on us we knew and we had faith in ourselves and we had been playing okay up into that year like we got a direct spot into the trials so we didn't have to go through the pre-trial so 
um, it was nice that way that we didn't have to grind out that year through the pre-trials, but we still picked and choose the events that we thought would give us the best chance leading up to the trials. But, you know, we started that event, you know, one and three, and maybe that's why we seem loose is we just said, you know what, like, our collars don't feel that tight because, you know, we're, we're basically out of it unless we run the table. We just kind of said, you know what, let's just enjoy the experience. We, we stuck to a routine. We seemed to have fun. We, we took it upon ourselves just to get to know the volunteers and the people in the stands, and we had a lot of people cheering for us. So, you know what, if we can reflect on that um, and take that attitude going into every event just to, to stay loose and have fun and enjoy the moment, I think that's when we would get the most success. So I think that's what Jerry Peckham was talking about is that, you know, we seem to just enjoy the moment, have fun, um, but we believed in ourselves. Like we, we had a routine, we would get to the rink at a certain time, we would, would the four of us would, would be energized, we would have a pregame routine, we would chat, and then we'd get on the ice. But, you know, I think it was just that our mindset changed, and that's when we seemed to get better, and we started winning games and making shots. Having come so close to winning the trials in 2013 and seeing as how you are now four years further along in your career, is there more of a sense of urgency this time? And if so, how do you go about making sure it doesn't impact your play in Summerside? I hope not. I mean, it's, it's something that we're not really talking about, but I, I think we're all feeling it. And, you know, every single time I went to the Scotties and, and you know, didn't do well as I would have liked you know, I got thinking, oh, it's so hard to get back there. And then you just think, was that a wasted opportunity? And, you know, I think just, you know, not winning the final in 2013, thinking, you know, how hard it was to get there, there's regrets and not doing better. But I don't think all of a sudden we're saying, you know, oh, we just got to win one more game, we'll get to the Olympics, because it's not that easy. Um, you think of it, you know, we were in the finals in 2013, and now we're battling a spot with, you know, for a pretrial spot with, 13 other teams so it's not that easy and it seems like curling is a very fickle sport but no I certainly don't think there's urgency um I mean I would love to get to a Scotties with this team I would love to get back to the trials and but you know you can't think of it because you try and break it down and it and really it's one shot at a time one game at a time and you know I would like to leave this sport with no regrets but I don't think that's ever possible in a sport um, but I would certainly like to go out on a winning note with this team. There seems to be two approaches that teams are using to prepare for the pre-trials. Some teams are playing more events than usual to get in as many games as possible while others are playing a lighter schedule. What is the plan for your team? Well we've already started um, you know it's a very front front loaded schedule uh, just with the, the pre-trials being so early in the season so for us it was just a matter of making sure that we are ready early and then as we get closer to the pre-trials we're slimming it down a little bit just to make sure that you know the week leading up to the pre-trials that we are rested you know we're certainly going to be looking at um, quality events and the number of games maybe something a little bit closer to home so that we're not traveling and, and getting tired that way we would rather have uh, more games on the ice rather than spending time in an airport. But, uh, yeah, it's it's just it's, it's difficult because everything is just pushed that much further. Um, you know, the last time go around, we didn't have to be ready and peaking until December, but now it has to be, you know, early November and not looking, not looking ahead to the trials. We have to focus on the pre-trials. But uh, for us, it, I mean, we've been on the ice now since August with a summer league down in Oakville. I don't even have ice where we are yet but uh, you know we've we've played two spiels we've already had about four games in summer league so we're definitely front end loaded and then going to take a little bit easier as we get closer to the pre-trials and finally sherry what would it mean for you and your team to represent canada at the winter olympics in pyeongchang oh my goodness it would just be the icing on the cake um you know i've i've worn the maple leaf at different events not at a world championship, but different events in, in China and Japan and, and at the Continental Cup. But, you know, I can I can only imagine what it would feel like, and I've often thought about it, but I think until you get to that moment, you, you can't even prepare yourself. But, you know, I, seeing how we were one win away from, from going, and, and so looking at it kind of from Team Jones's perspective when they were in Russia, you know, I just think, um, you know, you try and imagine what it would be like, but um, it definitely would be icing on the cake and a, a great way to round, you know, to finish off a long, long career. Four, 
It's now time for this week's Fresh Pebble, your news and notes from the world of curling. The 7th World Curling Congress took place this past weekend in Slovenia, and Jerry Gertz of the World Curling Tour joined us to discuss some of the major decisions and announcements that were made by the World Curling Federation at the Congress. Jerry, you were at the World Curling Congress uh, last week in Slovenia, and the one announcement that got a lot of attention was the forthcoming World Series of Curling that will include four events, two in China and one each in Europe and North America. As one of the leaders behind the recent merger of the World Curling Tour and the European Tour, with an eye towards creating slam-level events, in Europe, what was your take on this announcement? Yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting announcement. We we knew it was coming down the pipe with uh, uh, they've posted some job uh, uh, postings for the series. So, uh, and we've had some internal discussions with uh, with Colin Gramschla at the uh, WCS, and and uh, you know it, it's the kind of thing that a has the potential to to be a competitor and maybe divide uh, things a bit. But one of the things that they they seem to really be doing, and and this is key to you know curling in general, is is working together and and finding dates that work that fit the schedule, and also you know considering you know how we all fit into this picture too. So you know it's it's one of the things I, I had quite a few discussions with uh, different different uh, WCF uh, board members and 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 people around this, and you know one of the things that uh, that we need to stress and we need to be careful of is is that. Uh, there's this really starting to become a lot of things for the elite teams, the top teams, the national teams. But, uh, you know, one of the core, core philosophies of the world curling tour is that, uh, you know, we consider ourselves, you know, kind of the caretakers of, of all of the competitive game. And, and so, you know, this was something that we stressed to them and, and, uh, you know, we want to make sure that, uh, we create a relationship so that we can continue to build that part of the game. And, you know, the WCS mate and, and, and mission is, is about uh, more than just the top of the game. So, you know, I think they were really receptive to that. And, and there was a lot of really great discussions around that. And, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, we, we all have to work together and uh, in order for it to work, you know, if we start competing with each other, we're going to chase sponsors that are in the, are part of the same uh, you know, target. We're going to end up uh, stepping on toes with dates and fighting over uh, you know, a somewhat limited amount of teams at this point that can afford to take that time that are pushing into that professional rank. So, you know, I think for the good of the game, everything sounds great coming out of out of their uh, side of the side of the table, and and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing where this all goes. It's uh, it's definitely an exciting time for curling right now. Now, with all of these recent announcements, is it fair to say that we are headed into somewhat of a two or three tiered system of events? similar to what they have in tennis, where the top 20 or 25 teams will stick mostly to the slams, the champion series in Europe, and the World Series of Curling events, while the teams ranked below that will compete in the other events on the World Curling Tour. We're seeing a tiering of the uh, of everything in general anyways. Like, it was one of the, the core structures of how we uh, put the tours together. And, uh, you know, with our announcement, we you know, we were looking at the Grand Slam of Curling and then the Champion Series uh events, uh, the majors that uh, we're working on developing as, as part of that tier one, the world series would fall into that. And, and then your tier two, your, our master series is, is, you know, those are, those are the, the major events on the world curling tour right now. You've got, uh, you know, portage, the Canadians, you've got, uh, direct drilling, direct horizontal drilling in Edmonton, the two cells events in, in Ontario, uh, Gatineau, the shorty just finished up, wrapped up this weekend, you know, events like that that uh you know are your are your tier uh your tier two you know master series and then below that you've got your challenger series which are you know your regional type series events and there may even be an opportunity to go another tier below that you know we're seeing that some you know some of these smaller events popping up in the united states and in uh, kalamazoo fort wayne that are truly entry-level uh cash field events giving teams the opportunity to get in so you know, you're going to see some changes to to where teams play to a degree. You know, I think it's important we still make sure that, that the elite teams play some of these other events as well because they're a drawing card. And at the end of the day, they, they are uh, 
you know, they're the teams that bring people out to watch. So I want to follow up on something you just touched on briefly there. With the addition of the World Series of Curling by the World Curling Federation and the Champions event in Europe to go along with the Slams, the schedules for most of the elite teams will be fairly jammed. Has there been talk of implementing a system similar to tennis where elite players are required to play a set amount of lower-tiered events each season? Uh, that's actually been uh, fully discussed uh, quite a bit already, actually. It's, uh, you know, that is the structure that, I, that uh, we have been looking at. And, and uh, you go back to the Grand Slams, and uh, they posted a few player summits. And this is a topic of conversation that's come up in the t- player summit and, and something that they understand needs to happen as well. Um, you know, the players are not looking to leave their roots behind. And, and when you when you think about where the schedule sits right now, there's still lots of room for other events in the in the fall schedule, even if we add a couple of big big events in there yet. You know, when you when you talk about there's four Grand Slams in there right now, you know, you add a couple more that you know makes five or six. Um, you know, most of the top teams are playing in the neighborhood of eight to ten events before Christmas. And so there's definitely going to be opportunity there. And, and then the other side of things is, too, is many of these teams are still, you know, balancing uh, work and jobs at home. As they professionalize, you know, I foresee the opportunity for them to actually play a little bit more. You know, they, when they hit the road, go hit, you know, go hit a tournament, come home, then, then they have downtime. Whereas a lot of these teams right now, they have responsibilities around work and, and uh, you know it's it's back to the grind. So, so I think it will open up some more opportunities as as uh, the money and and events increase for these teams to be able to play. And you know there's there's uh, a lot of value in these uh, mid tier events too. Nothing wrong with going out and winning a ten fifteen thousand dollar first prize check either. The World Curling Federation also changed a few rules and event formats at the Congress in Slovenia. One change that caught my attention was the WCF's uh, decision to replace the page playoff format with two quarterfinals where the winners will move on to the semis where they will then meet the top two teams in the round robin. Now, obviously, this change had enough support to pass at the Congress, but I'm wondering if the World Curling Federation received any blowback from countries such as Canada where the page playoff system is used and seems to be working well. The page system's always been kind of that uh you know round peg in a square hole kind of scenario it's really built for pool pool play two pools and you get two pool winners you know it's it's something when you when you think about curling it's kind of one of these things where anything can happen on any game any day and you need to give some proper value to the round robin uh, and and that's why they chose to, to go with the pool play or with that with the page system sorry you know you, you talk about the advantages of, of first place there's still a pretty significant advantage of finishing first over second even though you get a second chance that that uh that hammer and or rocks depending on how far of an advantage you have uh is is a pretty significant advantage in our game you know you're still looking at like almost 60 40 starting with hammer in the first half so but uh you know it's one of the one of the issues that uh that uh the wcf is looking at is, is scheduling and tiebreakers are a bit of a hassle for them because, you know, they're trying to fit in uh, into, into events into all these venues and, and trying to set up TV and all that stuff. So so for the longest time, they've been trying to eliminate tiebreakers from the mix. And, uh, you know, the Canadian contingent certainly does not support this and, and uh, did not seem to support the uh, going to six and, and – uh, the quarters into the semis and, and straight uh, playoff bracket. So it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I don't know if Canada, you know, Canada may just stick with the page for the, for the simple reason that they want to, you know, they want to protect the teams that have a, have a strong round Robin and give them that extra opportunity and, and, and all that. So, you know, at the end of the day at the world championships, you don't need to protect anybody, but when you're a national organization that depends on medals for your funding, you know, you want to make sure you're sending your best team and you don't really want to see flukes and upsets uh, at the end of the day, which will, you know, which can cause you to lose significant funding uh, for the future seasons. So, yeah, so there's there's definitely some balancing going on here. The WCF going away from the page, I think, has something to do with the fact that the, the Olympic Games is still a straight one four two three playoff. And, I believe, you know, I, I can't confirm this, but... I have a feeling that they tried to get the page into there, but it was just never uh, 
never something that uh, interested the uh, uh, the IOC, and so they're going back to a structure that will match what the, their existing setup is. So, and finally, Jerry, the one rule that likely will be the most applauded in Canada is the implementation of the Five Rock Rule at WCF-sanctioned events. I'm wondering how much support this change received in countries that are unfamiliar with the Five Rock Rule, and how you believe it will impact Canadian teams at championships around the world. You know what? I think that is the biggest piece of news for Canadian curling fans. And probably the biggest thing to come out of this uh, at the end of the day because of uh, we've, we've been immersed in it for, for uh, several years now through the Grand Slams. And, you know, it really is an exciting day for the Grand Slams. Another rule change tested on the Slams. Uh, when you think back, uh, thinking time, uh, that was a, a rule change uh, that uh, was first tested through the Grand Slams. And then, of course, drawing for the hammer. That's something we've been doing from the start. So, uh, you know, pretty neat to see a, another thing tested and, and worked out through the Grand Slam of Curling that uh, has it been implemented into the real changes. And personally, myself, I'm very excited to see this happen. The Five Rock Rule is kind of that perfect rule change. It doesn't drastically alter the game. Um, Andrew Denny did a neat article in the Curling News uh, last season or the year before where he actually went and looked at scoring and the Five Rock Rule. and the five rock rule doesn't actually increase scoring, but what it does is, is it forces both teams to play longer in a game. You know, you can't get a two point lead in a five rock rule, three point lead in the five rock rule and just start peeling home. And which, you know, causes pretty boring curling to watch on TV when you see some of these hitting teams that just don't miss. So, so now both teams are forced to continue to play offensive in order to, to finish out the game. And it just makes for better quality uh, games at the end of the day. So, you know, the change will be that teams are actually forced to play the game longer. And I think that's going to be better for the game and and, uh, and, and much more exciting to, to follow and watch. So, yeah, great, great, exciting day and, and all that. Now, the vote, it was kind of shocking, to be honest. Unanimously approved by all member associations. Which, uh, you know, for, for something, for a rule change like this, that when people sit down and look at it, they could, you know, there, there, there could be some, certainly some questions. And, but I think a lot of that has to go to uh, Nolan Beeson, who's uh, on the Athlete Council uh, for the World Coming Federation. And he, he sat down and he did a lot of the research necessary to, to set up and make sure that everybody had the information and, and it showed what it did to the game and what it meant to the game. And uh, so you know, he did dug through all the numbers, pulled all the information out, put all the reports together, and did did a did a great job lobbying in 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 support of this rule change. So you know a lot of kudos has to go to Nolan on this as well. Also last week, the World Curling Federation and Curling Canada announced that they were extending their partnership through 2020. That will see Canada host the 2019 World Men's Championship and the 2020 World Women's Championship. This partnership started in 2005 and most recently saw the Men's Worlds take place in Edmonton and will see the Women's Worlds take place in North Bay, Ontario from March 17th to the 25th, 2018. Curling Canada also announced last week that Canada's finest senior age curlers will battle for national titles in Stratford, Ontario next year as they contest the 2018 Everest Canadian Senior Men's and Senior Women's Curling Championships. The event for curlers age 50 and older is scheduled for March 24th to the 29th and will be played at the Stratford Rotary Complex where the 2016 Canadian Junior Men's and Women's Championships were held. At the 2017 Canadian Senior Curling Championships in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Wade White and his team from Alberta won the men's event, while Sherry Anderson and her team from Saskatchewan won the women's event. The fourth episode of Behind the Hack with Cheryl Bernard is now available online. This time, Cheryl is joined by Kevin Cooey for an in-depth interview with the two-time world and three-time Briar champion. Among other things, Cheryl and Kevin discuss poker, the Olympic trials, and why it makes sense to change your lineup every so often. Here is a clip from the interview where Cooey explains why he decided to switch teams at the start of the current Olympic cycle. It definitely wasn't an easy decision. I mean, our old team had had a lot of success. And we're great friends. I mean, we still are to this day, and we we won, uh, you know, a couple briars together, world championships. So it was tough, but um, you know, I'm also of the opinion that teams, there's a shelf life for teams. I mean, you don't see teams having their best success, you know, these days when they've been together six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. 
together. I mean, it just doesn't happen. Our guests for the second roundtable of the year are two tour players who also happen to have two of the more popular curling blogs in Canada. Mike Forney is the skip of the 55th ranked team in the world, and he also writes the In the House blog, where he shares his opinions on the sport and keeps us updated on curling in Quebec and eastern Canada. For his part, John Cullen is the lead for Team Joannis, the 50th ranked team in the world, and he also writes the MQFT features for Curling Canada, where he conducts interviews that shows us a different, often lighthearted side of the curlers he interviews. With the growth of the Grand Slam of curling, many in the broader curling community seem to think that the gap between the top 20 or 25 teams and the remainder of the teams on the World Curling Tour is getting bigger by the season. Mike, as someone who has competed on the World Curling Tour for several years now, do you get the sense that the gap between the top-tier teams and the second-tier teams is in fact widening? It's hard to measure something like that, like the gap. Is it it wider? Is it narrower? Are teams better or worse? I mean, there's always been great teams and there's always been not so great teams that fill out the bond fields, you know. And I think the big difference right now is just in terms of accessibility in that I'm, uh, I think you just, you'll probably introduce me as the skip of the 63rd ranked team in the world or something like that. I don't get to play the slam teams. I mean, uh, it used to be there was enough spiels that would be outside the slam series, like 32 and 64 team spiels that you could sign up for three or four of those in your season, and it, you'd at least get a chance to be in the tournament with these guys and play against them. And the reality is you only learn how to play these guys by and how to play at that level by playing against them. I mean, you can watch them on TV, but until you you play these teams on a regular basis, you're really never going to have a chance to break through from Tier 2 to Tier 1. Uh, now we just I, I just never see them. I mean, with all the slams that they play in, there's only maybe a handful of slams of, of events that they'll play in outside of the slams uh, that some of the Tier 2 teams would be in. So it, it's much harder and much more difficult to break through into the events where you would actually get a chance to play the best teams in the world. So you end up seeing the teams that are kind of in that, I don't know, 20 to 80 kind of range. You see the same teams all play each other in the same sort of events, and they're events that are are hurting for sponsorship, events that are hurting to get the attention that they deserve because they're becoming more secondary events without any big teams there. John, with the recent merger of the World Curling Tour and European Tours, I'm wondering if you think there might be some value in setting up a system where the top-tier teams would have to play a set amount of non-slam events, the way that tennis does it with their 1,000 series and 500 series, and perhaps create some sort of system where the top teams don't all show up for the same non-slam events, such as the Shorty Jenkins, where 13 of the top 20 teams in the world participated. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that, uh, like, for example, this past weekend was the, you know, the Tour Challenge event or the Tier 2. And, and I think increasingly where the sport is heading is to establishing a full-on Tier 2 tour, similar to, like, what you have in golf where you have the PGA Tour and then you have the Nationwide Tour or whatever they call it now. I think that is most likely where things will end up heading because, that's going to be the only way that uh, these, like, secondary spiels can stay alive. Uh, and it's increasingly points are a lot harder to come by. Like you say, there's only a few events every year where you can even, if you live outside of Ontario, uh, where you can play in an event and rack up points, you know. It's, it's very difficult for a team like mine uh, where I look across at Ontario and see teams, you know, like Baikin, uh, guys like that where, you know, they're able, balled in to an extent. I mean, they, they play a lot and they travel a lot. But, like, you see teams like that where they're, you know, playing in the same number of events as us. They're, uh, you know, they're winning less money, but they're, they have quadruple the number of points that, that we have. And so I think that that's increasingly what's happening is that it becomes harder and harder to accrue points. So the only way that you can accrue points is by trying to play in these events that these guys play in. Well, how do you choose knowing which ones they're going to go into? And like you say, if 13 of the top 20 teams all go into one event, it might push some people out. Um, So I think increasingly what will end up happening is that you'll end up, they'll have to establish some kind of official Tier 2 tour where you can get a reasonable number of the Tier 2 teams together to boost all of their points. Because right now, it's, it's a real false equivalency in terms of, uh, you know, trying to play in events with, with enough competition 
or enough strength of field or whatever to get enough points to move up. So I think that that will eventually be where it heads, but it's going to take a while to get there. Mike, the concern I would have if I ran one of these second tier events that John is referring to is that it might be difficult to get sponsors if we can't guarantee that some of the top tier teams will be involved. As an example, if my hometown of Timmins wanted to host a World Curling Tour event, it would be easier to get sponsors if we could guarantee the presence of two or three of the teams that people are most familiar with from having seen them at slam events, as an example. Well, I, I mean, like talking about sponsorship, there's two levels, right? First of all, there's events, and then there's the actual teams getting sponsorship. And once you get outside, I think, the Tier 1 teams, uh, sponsorship tends, from everything I've seen, tends to be more, hey, I know a guy at a company who can throw me a few bucks kind of thing, as opposed to a company actually seeing a real opportunity for marketing their product or marketing their services through sponsoring a curling team. Uh, it tends to be more friend money than actual marketing money. So it, uh, for Tier 2 teams, uh, sponsorship's hard to come by. In terms of sponsoring events, I, I think it's the same reality. Like you said, it's, do you, do you want to sponsor the, the, the Tier B event or do you want to throw your money into the Tier A event? I mean, I, I kind of gave the example of a new company like Everest coming in and saying, hey, I want to put some money in curling. I mean, obviously they're not going to say, hey, let's go sponsor a Tier 2 event in Fredericton. They, they want to get the best curlers in the world there. They want to get the Gushus, they want to get the guys with the recognizable faces and uh, names that they can sell their tournament with. And, you know, Mike Fournier, as, as attractive as I am, is not always the uh, the best name <laughs> to sell your bond spiel. You know? John, has that also been your experience in Western Canada? I think I, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, you know, as a Tier 2 team, uh, it is definitely very difficult to get sponsorship. It's also very difficult to get sponsorship in B.C. in general, and I think it's probably the same for you in Quebec, Mike. Uh, yeah, you know, I think if you're if you're not in a prairie province where you know where curling is a, a recognizable sport and and teams that are wearing your logo uh, feels like a worthwhile investment, it is a lot of friend money. But I don't think that that necessarily means that people wouldn't want to sponsor events either. Like you like using your example, Frank, of of a tournament in Timmins. Well, maybe there's a company that's just in Timmins or or headquarters are in Timmins or whatever where they would see the value of sponsoring any type of marquee event just for community development and that kind of thing. I mean, I do think those sponsors will will exist. I mean, there's lots of spiels right now that are effectively Tier 2 spiels that have sponsorship. So I, yeah, do, think it's I do think it's possible, um, and I do think there, there would be interest, you know, if someone's organizing a tournament and says, hey, to a company, hey, can you throw us five grand or whatever to get this thing going – then I, I do think it is possible to have that happen. I think especially, in my mind, I'm imagining the Tier 2 is is a Grand Slam tour as well. So then maybe it's a package deal. You know, they say to Pinty's, okay, you're going to sponsor two of our, or I guess they're sponsoring all of the Grand Slams, but they say, uh, you know, to whoever, Boost, I guess. They Boost sponsors one of the Slams. So they say to Boost, okay, cool. If you want to sponsor the Tier 1 Slam, that's great. Uh, you'll get a Tier 2 slam as well for X amount of dollars or, or Tier 2 event or whatever. So it becomes more of a package thing where it's kind of everybody's in on the same on the same pie, I guess. And maybe that's the way that you do it. I, I'm not sure. But. A bit earlier, Mike mentioned the Everest Curling Challenge, which got a lot of attention a few weeks ago. Both of you were somewhat critical of the event on your social media platforms. John, you were particularly critical about the event on your Twitter feed. So, yeah, so I, I primarily – I talked about it back in uh, May or June. Uh, there's a, a buddy of mine, James Runge, uh, has a, a really good curling blog, Twine Time, uh, and uh, he has me on every year at the end of the year to talk about the year that was, and I, and I expressed my displeasure for the event uh, then. And um, I, I guess my main issue with it – it's hard to talk about when you're a player because it'll, it, it's just going to sound like sour grapes, you know, like the top teams would be, would that listen to your show. Uh, some of the top players may be like, oh, well, Cullen's just mad because he couldn't play in it. And so it's a tough line for me to toe, and it's probably the same for Mike, that, like, we're both players, but we also both are critical of the game at times, and, and it's sometimes hard to, like, wear a separate hat. Um, but in this case, it has nothing to do with me not wanting to, to play in it. I, I just think that uh, we've got a sponsor that is clearly uh, very interested in being engaged with curling. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they run their event 
with Furby and Jacobs and Jones and whatever. Uh, they're sponsoring the national seniors. Um, they clearly want to get involved with Curlin. So to me, why they would, like, why you would take a company that's willing to put $200,000 into curling, and as far as I understand it, Randy Furby, they're basically gave 200 grand to Randy Furby, and they're like, well, what do you think would be a good idea? And he's like, I know what we could do. Let's just make all the top teams have more money. Like, it, to me, it's just so crazy <laughs> that, that you would take $200,000 of a company's money and you think to yourself, you know what I think the best idea would be? Let's get all the teams together at the start of August. Let's split them all up. Let's split them by gender. And let's have them play a completely meaningless tournament for no reason whatsoever. Like, it just doesn't, like, I just, to me, I'm, like, watching it, and I'm like, okay, well, the, the curling is bad. Mixing up teams is bad. I mean, if you've ever curled and you've started a year with a new team, you know that it takes you at least three months to get your team together. I mean, yes, if you're curling at the top level, can you have results early? Of course you can. I mean, look at, like, Gunlinson took over Dunstone's team, and they won the Tour Challenge, or Pat Simmons took over uh, Gunlinson's old team, and they had a good run at the slam. Like, it's obviously possible when you get good curlers together to have good curling and good results. But I think most teams would say, well, you know, it takes a while to develop good communication, and teams typically don't peak even in their first year together. So now you're not only mixing teams up, but you're mixing up genders as well. So that creates another wrinkle entirely. It, it, just, it just really rubbed me the wrong way. Uh, in terms of, you know, I, I don't know what the solution is. I, I don't know what necessarily a better idea is. Mike, to John's point, when you commented on the Everest Curling Challenge in your blog, you seemed to propose a possible solution to how the monies invested by Everest could, in your opinion, be better utilized. I, I mean, I think the, the timing of the event is one thing. I, I think it, it, it really looked preseason. I, I mean, and I know what I look like the first time I step on the ice, you know, and it takes you a while just to get your curling legs back. And it looked like I was watching that on TV, you know, which seemed like a strange thing to be doing and a strange thing to be have people praying for a supposedly big amount of money. And I, I think there's <laughs> better ways they could have been spending the money, though. You know, I I, I look at it and I know some of it, the sponsorship came from like, uh, like Fredericton and, and the province of New Brunswick, you know. And I, I look back in the days when New Brunswick used to have McCain sponsoring a big event there where they'd have 64 or 32 of the best men's teams in the world show up and play, you know, for probably a whole lot less sponsorship money uh, invested, you know, to, to win a spiel. So it, it seems like I, I they've kind of, we've kind of lost track of, like, where the money goes. And, and I think, as John was saying, just spending $200,000 this way just seems so weird and wasteful and to the and i can tell you to the tier two teams that are watching this is kind of like wow <laughs> wow they, they get money for this <laughs> john had everest decided to put on an event similar to the old mccain super spiel or perhaps put on a tiered event similar to what is done at the tour challenge with a sizable purse is it safe to assume that tier two teams from western canada would have made the trip yeah totally i mean i think that uh yeah that's absolutely right and and it, I agree with what Mike said. You know, I read his blog about that, and, and I, you know, uh, I'm a little young. Uh, I mean, I'm not that young, but curling-wise, I'm pretty young. Like, I, I was not around in the days of the McCain Super Spiels, but guys talk about those like, you know, that was the best. You know, the, those those two, they had an East and a West. Uh, those two, and in, in I believe in uh, 2001 or, yeah, because the Olympics were in 2002, I believe in 2001, uh, the winner of those spiels, there was a trials berth on the line. Absolutely. In fact, I recently interviewed Sherry Madaw, who participated in the Olympic trials back then, and she indicated that she won her way into the trials one year by winning one of those spiels. Yeah, yeah. so, I mean, I, I think you would definitely see teams like us, you know, uh, we would totally do that. If it, was a, if it was a massive purse like that, we knew, and also that we know we're not competing against the Tier 1 teams, then, of course, like if you're saying to me, Okay, we've got an event. We have a seventy-five thousand dollars purse, so top prize is probably twenty-five or thirty grand or whatever, and and we can and we're only going to play teams that are ranked thirty-three and below. I mean, we're I think right now like forty-first or forty-second, so we're all of a sudden like the eighth or ninth seed in an event that uh, we could win thirty grand. Of course, we would fly across the country for that. Why wouldn't we? my team was looking at at 
traveling to Peddington for the spiel when we saw it go online because we're like, wow, that could be an interesting one. So uh, oh, I mean, uh, yeah, teams totally. here too are willing to travel. You know, it's just uh, a getting into the spiel, b just the big expense of traveling across the country. It has to be worthwhile. You know, switching to another subject, the sport of curling seems to have become much more business-like than it has been in the past, and there doesn't seem to be as much quote-unquote piss and vinegar on the ice during games as there was in the good old days. I think it's fair to say that the top teams aren't necessarily always the best friends off the ice, but it never really plays out on the ice anymore. Do you think the sport would be better served from a viewing standpoint if there were more intense rivalries in the sport today? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I think that, I think in a lot of sports, uh, that doesn't exist anymore. I think that in team sports, uh, rivalries are created by the fans based on either geography uh, or past history between teams. But I think for the most part, uh, there's too much money in professional sports now. Players don't, they don't see the value in trying to kill someone else and, and taking away their meal ticket. So I think across the board, that kind of rivalry thing has died down a little bit, uh, at least in North American sports, because uh, I think it, it's really just about the tribalism as opposed to, like, player versus player or team versus team. I don't think that exists as much anymore. And then certainly in individual sports, that just doesn't really exist, like tennis, golf. You don't really see it there either. The rivalries are just this one guy's really good and this other guy's also really good. It's very rarely a personal thing. Uh, so I, I think that that is part of it. I think the other part of it is that uh, curlers are not stupid, and uh, their audience is uh, not people who want that, generally speaking. Uh, unfortunately, uh, or, or fortunately, I, I don't know, but the main audience for curling is still uh, people who are age 60 and above. And uh, so they don't, they don't typically look for that stuff, or they don't want it, you know? I mean... Jacobs went through a whole bunch of, of, uh, of grief after the Olympic trials and the Olympics, you know, when they were really uh, trying to fire the crowd up and be really aggressive. Yes, the come on heard around Canada. It would have been interesting to get Kevin Martin's take on that reaction from that celebration at the 2013 trials. Kevin Martin's a real smart guy. So in my opinion, Kevin Martin looked at that and went, uh, that's probably pretty good for curling, actually. That doesn't actually bother me that much. That was my, that's my personal take on it. Because uh, if you watch it, when, when Jacobs is celebrating his ass off, Martin raises his broom like good shot. Like I don't think he was. I don't know. I don't think he was that mad. But people like to get mad about that. You know, people like to get mad about on on his behalf. Oh, you disrespected Kevin Martin. Oh, you disrespected Brad Gushu. Oh, you did like it's. So I think it's one of those things that even Jacobs, they've calmed down a lot. And it's not because they're calmer dudes, I'll tell you that much. Uh, <laughs> it's because they saw all the grief, like they just couldn't deal with it anymore. They, they were like, they tried to do something. They, they tried to turn the sport over. I interviewed them after they won the gold medal for Vice Sports. And they talked a lot about wanting to change the sport and wanting to make curling appointment viewing and promoting rivalries and stuff like that. They don't do that anymore because they tried and it didn't work. People weren't into it because I think the majority of the curling audience either uh, doesn't care to see that or is actively vocal saying, like, we don't like that. We don't like that they're putting themselves out there like that. They, they want it to be vanilla, unfortunately. And I think that that's going to end up being a problem for curling down the line 10 or 20 years from now when all those people are no longer with us and not watching curling anymore. How are you going to appeal – to this generation. I think that's something that curling's missing out on a bit, but that's a that's a bigger a bigger conversation. What about you, Mike? You were around for at least part of the era where there was often tension on the ice when teams such as Martin, Furby, and Howard faced each other a lot. Uh, do you think there is still place in the sport for on-ice rivalries, or do you agree with John that it's not conducive to the current curling landscape? Uh, not at all. I, I think curling needs to go down the road of, like, world wrestling. I think we need to have yelling. I think we need to have catchphrases. Like, I'm working on our catchphrase for our team, actually. Like, can you see what we're cooking or, or something like that? I don't know. I, I'm still working on it. It's a work in progress. But we need to – no, seriously, it's uh, – I mean, it's, it's not a game that lends itself to that right now. I mean, and with the attention that's come to the game and the attention of all the sports psychology that's in it, it's teams are very – they take emotion out of it a lot. You know, I mean, they tend to be very robotic. You look at some of the best teams in the world right now. I mean, Koei is, is phenomenal, but, I mean, 
watching him, it look, you're you're wondering if he has a pulse. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and I'm sure they get nervous, and I'm sure that's it's it's what we see on TV versus what actually is the case. But uh, I, I mean, there's a lot less emotion in the game, it seems, and it's not something that's going on at increasing pageants. If anything, it's it's fading more and more from the game, which I think is a shame. And to, to go back to the Everest a bit, I think the one thing. If I had to say there was one good thing that happened in the Everest, is that like fans got to see a bit of personality maybe from some of the curlers, you know, and that they were interacting with different people. You saw them sort of talking to each other, and I think that's maybe something that is missing from the game a bit now, and that it does seem like it, if you're watching a slam now, it just seems very robotic. I mean, I don't think there are any great rivalries in the game right now. One of the things I want to cover with the two of you before I let you go is to get somewhat of a quote-unquote state of the union for each of your provinces from a curling perspective. Mike, to be fair, the province of Quebec has essentially been dominated by the same team or two for over a decade now, and I'm wondering if you are slowly starting to see a next generation step up to take over from the Jean-Michel Menards of the world over the next few years. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's uh, we do see a lot of young teams. I mean, I mean, it, you can talk about my team. I'm actually the the crusty old guy on the team now. And actually, uh, Felix Aslan, who's coming out of juniors in Quebec after having done reasonably well on a national stage at juniors, is throwing skips rocks for me now, actually. So uh, he's long after I've been out to pasture. He'll be the, the next generation Quebec curler coming up in all likelihood. Uh, and there's some other guys, too. I mean, there's uh, uh, Francois Roberge's son, uh, Vincent Roberge, actually just won the juniors in Quebec uh, last year and went to nationals, and is still pretty young and has a few more years of eligibility. So uh, if he has half the competitiveness that his dad has, uh, he's going to be a, a force to be reckoned with coming out of junior. Guys are, that are still in, and even if I look east, I mean, there's uh, I see young teams in New Brunswick. I see young teams in Nova Scotia when we're out on tour. I mean, uh, Stuart Thompson is one of the is moving up in the world rankings. I mean, that's uh, a strong youngish team for sure. So there's guys out there. there. There's a next generation of teams I think coming up. And John, British Columbia went through a very good period there with Kelly Scott on the women's side and various incarnations of Team Carter on the men's side. But the well seems to have run dry a little bit over the past few years, especially on the women's side. Now, to be fair, Sarah Daniels and Tyler Tardy have both shown tons of potential. But I'm wondering if there is enough depth coming through the ranks to push those teams over the next Olympic cycle. Uh, who's Wait, sorry, who's Tyler Tardy? Never heard of him. <laughs> no, 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 never, never. Never played him, never heard of him. Uh, no, yeah, he's uh, he's a really good uh, player. I, I just keep telling him that uh, he's uh, he's just got to let me win one or two, and then and then he can win the next ten. I'll retire, and he can he can just win as many as he wants. But he's got to let me win a couple. But uh, yeah, I mean, BC. The, the the thing with the way that BC is set up, BC is really good. Or at least I would say, pretty much since uh, the early two thousands when we had a decent number of good teams and we had teams showing extremely well on the, on the world stage. Greg McCauley won, won the worlds in 2000. Uh, Kelly Scott just about made the Olympics, went to worlds in back to back year. BC has often, I would say in the last 15 years, uh, it's, it's suited very well to be a one team province. Uh, we, we lost a lot of our events. Uh, again, as I said, it's very difficult to come by sponsorship in BC because uh, curling is not uh, the fabric of, of small communities like it is in the prairies and, and Ontario to an extent. So you just don't see companies that interested in getting involved with it. They don't really understand the value of a curling sponsorship. I mean, a great example of that is Jim. Uh, you know, Jim had the same sponsor for five or six years. Uh, they were his title sponsor. He went to the Briar every single year. He was making slams. He started to play with John almost made the Olympics, and that sponsor just dropped them. Like, they were just like, yeah, I mean, like, whatever. They're not seeing their return on investment, I guess, or whatever. But that's kind of the way that BC – BC is set up to to support one or two extremely good teams because you have to get on a plane a lot. To, to we, we just – I mean, it's lucky we've got the Penticton event coming in this year. Hopefully that stays for a while. Uh, but we lost the West Coast Classic. Vernon used to be a great men's event. It's now down to eight teams. It's not even a qualifying, a WCT qualifying event anymore. So in order to be good in BC, you, you have to be able to get on a plane four or five times a year, 
kind of can't do that without sponsorship money. So it's sort of this like vicious cycle. So yeah, in BC, you kind of have, you know, you got Morris uh, on the top level, you have us and, and a couple other teams, Giel, uh, Pierce, uh, kind of on the next level. And then after that, it's a pretty steep drop off. And, and not that the teams are bad, they're just they just don't play as much. And like Mike alluded to earlier, if you're not playing the top teams, you're you're not getting better, at least not in the way that you could be. So um, I think increasingly, or I think it's just going to stay that way in BC unless uh, something changes. And, and Curl BC, to their credit, has actually done quite a bit to try and establish a high-performance program and encourage more teams to uh, to be involved. So hopefully that works. And a rising tide lifts all boats. So, I mean, you've got Sarah Daniels and Corinne Brown on the ladies' side. You've got Tyler Tardy. Uh, Matthew McCready is a really good young curler uh, that's coming up. So you, if you have those good teams and juniors, presumably that strengthens all the other junior teams and will make the men's and women's ranks good down the line. But whether or not that happens remains to be seen. But, but that's the top right now. I mean, Tardy for sure. Uh, probably one of the toughest games we had all year last year was against him and the Provincials in the B final. He wow. pushed us for, for everything that we had, and we managed <laughs> to beat, we, we managed to beat them, uh, but we, we had to earn it. I have a few quick-fire questions before I let you go. Mike, name one team from Eastern Canada that is better than the results have shown and could surprise some people this season. Jamie Murphy. And John, how about a team from Western Canada that is better than the results have shown and could surprise this season? Pierce, I guess. I mean, Brent's pretty good, and he got together with uh, with Andrew Bolesky, who had a really rough year last year, but he's really good as a third. So I think you got Andrew playing his natural position, and, and Brent's always a good shot maker, so I guess I'll say them, but I don't know if that's a surprise. Mike, how about one curler from Eastern Canada that is not well-known yet, but that will be a familiar name to curling fans come 2021? I'll go with Vincent Robert, the guy I mentioned before. John, how about in Western Canada? Sarah Daniels. She, uh, she could be the best in the world if she wants. Mike, if you could pick a team to be fifth four at the Olympic trials, who would you pick? Good question. Uh, Mike McEwen. And finally, John, how about you? Which team would you pick to be the fifth four at the Olympic trials in Ottawa? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat. I'm going to say two. I'm going to say curling-wise, I would choose Gushu. Off-ice-wise, I'd choose Laycock. As mentioned, John writes a regular feature called MQFT for Curling Canada and can be followed on Twitter at Cullen the Curler. Meanwhile, Mike is a little bit more old school and doesn't tweet as much, but he can be followed at MikeFournier71 where he provides a link to his In the House blog. And that does it for Episode 7 of the From the Hack Podcast. My thanks to all of our guests. Join us next week when our guests will include Nolan Thiessen of Curling Canada and Glenn Howard, among others. In the meantime, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at FromTheHack, on Facebook and Instagram, and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Frank Rock, and this is From the Hack.